Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst. And democracy is fragile, and its essence is also its greatest vulnerability. It depends on public support for its very existence. So we are in a perilous moment right now as we push to make our elections more open, more accessible, and more inclusive. And the Republicans, shocker, do not want this. Their survival is all about holding down voting by any means necessary. And in the debate over who should vote, they have the upper hand. If they win restrictions on voting, they win. And if they lose in their efforts to restrict voting, they can still win by using the debate to destroy faith in elections. That is their cynical game right now. And we must not blink, but we must also not be naive. There are two big issues on the table right now. Who is eligible to vote? And then assuring that everyone who is eligible actually is able to vote. We've come a long way in making most Americans eligible to vote, even if you don't own property, are not white, and aren't, well, a man. But on assuring that everyone actually can vote, hmm. The gap between who is eligible to vote in this country and who is actually able to vote is one of the greatest scars on our democracy with a lowercase d. The gap undermines the legitimacy of our elected governments, yet fixing it gives the opponents of democracy an opening to, yes, undermine the legitimacy of our elected governments. And that happens on both sides of the aisle. Incumbents want to protect themselves, but Republicans want to hold power when they know that the country looks very different very different than the way that they hold that power. So we need to proceed with great resolve, not just to win, but to explain why we should win. Clarity is essential, since the opponents of voting rights win just by creating chaos and confusion. For example, there are a number of ways we should continue to expand eligibility, like assuring that the formerly incarcerated have their rights restored. But our biggest challenge and the one that Democrats have correctly focused on is removing the obstacle course that makes it hard for eligible voters to actually vote. This is where Republicans are at their cynical worst. They have created a series of myths and voter fraud and then use those myths to create obstacles to vote. ID rules, restrictions on, on length of voting and location of voting places, resistance to mail balloting, as we know from last year. This did not begin with the Donald Trump debacle of 2020 or the attack on the Capitol, and it clearly has not ended. Republicans are pushing in almost every single state right now to restrict access to voting. Voting has always primarily been a state responsibility. And in several places last year, Republicans had the courage to do their jobs and protect the proper counting of ballots. Republicans that they are trying to undo, you know, these are the same Republicans that are trying to undo years of effort to professionalize the administration of elections. Shame, right? Shame, shame, shame. So I can't believe that I am quoting Chuck Schumer. Today, now, in the 21st century, there is a concerted nationwide effort to limit the right of American citizens to vote and to truly have a voice in their own government. In the wake of the November elections, one of the safest in recent history, Republican-led led, Republican -led state legislatures have seized on the former president's big lie that the election was stolen and introduced more than 250 bills in 43 states aimed at tightening voting rules under the guise, the guise of election integrity. 
Instead of doing what you should be doing when you lose an election in a democracy, attempting to win over those voters in the next election, Republicans instead are trying to disenfranchise those voters. Shame on them. Shame on them. That was yesterday at a Senate hearing on a vital bill to protect the essential right to vote. While the Republicans are fighting state by state to restrict voting and retain their power over ballot counting, the House has passed legislation to create nationwide standards for voter access, like a simple universal registration. That is the bill that Senator Schumer was arguing for in that clip, as it is taken up by the Senate. The Republicans denounced this as federalizing a state responsibility. That is an exaggeration. But there is a kernel of truth here, and it is all on them. They've spent years and years, decades, trying to suppress voting and undermining the legitimacy of elections. It's racist, as we know. It's gendered. It's ageist. The damage that they have done is incalculable. The chickens came home to roost on January 6th, and if Republicans don't want uniform federal standards for voting, then they should back off their state-by-state -state campaign to suppress voting. It is that simple. And I'm not holding my breath, but we're going to be watching this closely. We have a great show today. We're going to be talking about the PRO Act and what's happening in the labor movement right now with the one and only Kim Kelly. And later we have a run chowdery and rep rab because it is Thursday. Thursday on the Nomi Key Show, you know what's about to happen. All right, stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So excited to have Kim Kelly back. She is a labor reporter and journalist. Uh, she writes a labor column for Teen Vogue and is a regular contributor to The Baffler. And you have a piece out right now in Rolling Stone about workers and indie music company beginning efforts to organize secretly because that's how you have to do it, right? Of course. You can't let them know what you're up to because they'll try to stop it. But you're writing about it. So what is that going to do? <laughs> now, well, this was like, this is actually a coordinated effort. These workers reached out to me uh, last week saying, hey, we're organizing. We are, we want to get this out there. Uh, we don't want the boss to know about it, obviously, because we haven't told them yet. So we actually coordinated very closely when and it came to scheduling. Like I wrote it up really quick and the editor reached out for comment really quick. And then we waited and we waited for them to put out their statement. Then we we're like, boom, it was like a very like, I woke up at 7 a.m. To, to make sure this all unfurled the way that the workers wanted it to, and we pulled it off, which I'm very happy about, and so are they. Is, this is incredible. I mean, so, so how does something like this go down at, at an indie music company? I mean, I assume it's not a very large company, so does that complicate things? That is definitely something that came up when I was speaking with the workers. I interviewed a bunch of workers about it, and one of the, and all, they were all in the store, they all, has to be anonymous because it's such a small workplace. Some of the people I spoke to, they're like, look, I'm the only person with my job title. You know, like they'll know it's me. So it's the and it seems like their their biggest concern was retaliation. And maybe not so much the, okay, I'm gonna get fired, because that is ostensibly against labor law, but more insidious things like, you know, this is the music industry where who you're friends with, who you know, who you talk, who, you know who you talk mess about, like that matters. Like if you piss off the wrong person, that could have an effect on the rest of your career and the, and the opportunities you get. So the fact that it was so small made it a little, a little bit more interesting, but 
it's still the same process, you know, forming a union is forming a union. It's just all the other factors that kind of get thrown in there. Um, so what does that mean? Like it's, it's why did they decide to form a union uh, at this company? So they told me, which is actually, it's really interesting to me because they cited a bunch of events that have happened recently. And this is kind of a concrete response to them. They, they mentioned, you know, the racial justice uprisings over the summer that really struck a chord. They, they mentioned what's happening here in Bessemer with the Amazon workers trying to organize. They mentioned, you know, developments in, on the government level of Biden being so, you know, making all these pro-union messages and about the NLRB shakeups. It seemed like it was kind of a perfect storm. And they were, of course, they were also dealing with workplace issues. The, the company they work for has expanded very rapidly. And of course, that pressure has fallen on their shoulders. So it sounds like all this stuff swirled together. And, and the answer for them turned out to be union. What union are they working with? Is OPIU, uh, I think it's 47 and 147. I'd have to double check. There's a lot of OPIUs, but it's the, it's uh, like the office workers union, office union and professional workers. And they actually, there's a precedent there because they already represent administrative employees at Warner Brothers and some of the big major labels. But this is definitely a first for the indie music space. That's very cool. So I mean, while we're on that topic, because I think we get this question a lot, um, and it depends obviously on, on the workplace and what type of, of where you work, what kind of uh, industry it is. But how do you go about, if you're working at a company and you wanna start a union in that company, what are some initial steps that workers can do? Right, well, I mean, the first thing you should do is to reach out and talk to your coworkers and make sure you're on the same page. Because if just one person wants to form a union and everyone else is like, no, and that's not really going to work out. But once you talk to your coworkers and have those one-on-one conversations and get a sense that like, okay, people are interested in this. This is something we need. We collectively want to fight for. Then often it could come down to something as simple as just Googling like what's the right union for you? Like seeing what other similar companies have unionized, which was unions. I mean, even here, just to come back to Bessemer for a second, the RWDSU, the union that's representing this union drive, they, that was fun because a worker just kind of Googled, like, what union should I try to join? Like, how do I form a union? And they came up, and he, he did what, you, what everybody should do. You email the union and the representative. The representative gives back. You start talking. It's all about foreign relationships and talking and communication at the very beginning, right? Because you have to make sure you're on the same page because that's how you build something strong. Fascinating. Okay, so it's, it's, it's as easy as that. Google, look it up. Unions are receptive. I've been in that role before, by the way. Uh, it, it's it's daunting. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, it's, it's not super easy. It takes a lot of work, but the, the steps are simple. Making it happen is the hard part. Yeah, reaching out to your coworkers. And, yeah, and and understanding if, if you're in a workplace that you could actually unionize too. I mean, there's lots of other factors. Um, okay, so let's talk about Bessemer. You're on the ground right now, I assume? Is yeah, I am. I am holed up in my hotel room in Birmingham because there's a tornado warning. Oh my god! <laughs> again, another Alabama. I, again, this happened. I got here on Wednesday when Sarah Nelson came down, and there was a hurricane warning there too. I think I was one of the last flights to get in, and I got out, and I was like, "Oh, this is different." Okay, there's a lot of sirens. There's a lot of red on the map on the TV weather, but everyone who's down here was like, "Oh yeah, that happens." So I'm like, "Okay, <laughs> I guess this is fine." Stay safe. Uh, we'll be watching you carefully. But um, all right. So w- where are we in the process? Uh, you know, workers are, are, are voting. The campaign's underway. The election's underway. Um, any updates? Well, we're getting down to the finish line, right? Monday, the 29th. That is the last day that you can get your ballot in. And after that, 
they're going to start counting. Like this is this coming week is going to be the it's going to be like the equivalent of kind of the presidential election we just had where everyone was expecting a big result right away. And then it was like, no, it's going to take a few days. This is going to take a few days. But there is still time right now for workers to get those ballots in. So there's still this final push. There's a lot of community support. We just had a rally here the other day on Friday. Tomorrow we have like talk about a dream team. We have Senator Bernie Sanders, Killer Mike, and Danny Glover are all coming to town to meet with workers and to support them and just be like, you know, union, yes. Um, Danny Glover's been here before. He's been, the workers love him. Uh, so there's there's a lot happening, but it's kind of more that sense of, okay, we did all the work. We're just waiting for hopefully the victory party. There's just a few hurdles in the way because there's going to be legal challenges. There's going to be the issue of counting ballots, challenge ballots. I'm not even entirely sure which day we can expect a result. Nobody knows. It comes down to the count. So it's all very like a lot of butterflies in the stomach, as Jennifer Bates said when I interviewed her. How many um, people are voting or are expected to vote? So the well, vote. well, can vote. The, uh, every every person who who's eligible, 5,800 workers are eligible. And, you know, the ballots were mailed out. Now, not everybody received their ballot because, you know, as one of the organizers was, was explaining to me, folks move around. They might not have up-to-date information. There have been return ballots. There have been a few hundred ballots that haven't made it to people. But there are also thousands of workers involved in you know, every ballot counts, but it seems like, and this is just from conversations I've had, it seems like they expect a pretty good turnout. The organizers seem very positive about the results. There's not a lot of cynicism here. Like, I know that, you know, you take everything with a grain of salt, you never know what's going to happen, but people seem more excited than uh, than worried, I'll say. Sarah Nelson, um, the president of the Flight Attendance Workers, part of CWA, she had a video come out uh, that she posted of the facilities and 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 like how the elections were being conducted and what was against the NLB rules. Um, can you describe some of that to, to to folks? Yeah, I was I was there with her. With uh, we went out there. We um, maybe some light trespassing, I guess we'd say. But there was the day. So it was the day that we got there because there was a tornado happening. All the workers were sent home because the, the tornado ice. pushed you in there. You had a, it was safety. There's a lot of wind. You know, we're not <laughs> we're just... not very big. <laughs> we 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 ended up in in the Amazon parking lot where we could kind of get eyes on what was happening up there. And one of the biggest, I mean, obviously you see in the video, there is this mailbox, and we've been chasing this mailbox store all week. There's a mailbox that was placed there by someone, Amazon, USPS. There's a lot of questions about this mailbox, but there's a mailbox there with a big tent around it with some weird Amazon propaganda on it where workers have been encouraged to drop their ballots that via text message, via signage, Amazon really wants them to put their ballots there. And now we don't know who has the key, which is kind of a, a important part of that. You know, We don't know who is checking, who's picking up the ballots, who's able to access them, and we can't get a straight answer. That's something I'm, trying, I'm working on right now with a more perfect union. We, we should have a video coming out pretty soon with some pretty, so it's been an interesting story, right? But in, in the broader sense, Amazon is is still pushing their anti-union campaign, still pushing anti-union propaganda. I, I, you know, I'm not a labor lawyer, but there are certainly all sorts of things I would point to if I wanted to make, you know, the accusation that they were union busting or they were not quite coloring within the lines, we'll say. Yeah, they're, they're, they're always up to something. It's Amazon. I mean, so this is, I want to ask you more about the PRO Act in a second, but we're living in a, in, in a situation right now where there are 
legal ways to union bust and there are definitely illegal ways to union bust. Where on the spectrum do they sit right now? Like one to 10, 10 being most <laughs> illegal, one being unethical, but legal. I mean, they kind of run the gamut. You know, Amazon loves to innovate. So they're not gonna, you know, <laughs> so, like some things are more of a five, some things are maybe a two, but some things are like a nine and a half. You know, there's, I will be very interested to see what kind of legal challenges and legal de decisions are brought after the election wraps up. I know the union is focused on just the election right now, but this will not be the last we're hearing about Amazon's anti-union practices. I can tell you that much. What's the worst you've heard? I mean, this mailbox is very, it's very blatant. Like this is, that's something that is very intimidating. It's very blatant. They've been actively pushing people to use it. And there's still this question of what's going to happen to the ballots in the box. We don't know. Are they going to toss them? Are they going to play by the rules and use them? Has Amazon ever played by the rules? This, you know, th there's a lot of instances leading up to that, you know, of, of, of anti-union activity, anti-union propaganda, but that that's just so egregious. That's the one that I think people are paying attention to because it's like, it's, it's, they're, they're stealing the election and then there's like physically trying to steal the election, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a Republican tactic, frankly, where they've, you know, same thing. Um, all right, so after this vote happens, this is just one facility with Amazon. Um, what does this mean? What, what could this signify? What kind of changes can come out of this uh, if they win or lose, frankly? I mean, this is this is going to be a watershed moment in American labor history, no matter what happens. And I'm hoping that they win because that'll be that'll just be lighting the spark of things. You know, that's that's the analogy I keep coming back to. You know, all you need to start something big is to to hit that spark, and the lighters, the workers here are holding those matches. But we've already seen. I think it might it was Bloomberg that reported that RWSU, the union, has already heard from workers at like, heard from like a thousand workers across the country asking, can we be next? How do we do this? How do we get in on this? So people are watching, right? And once, once the Amazon workers here win, they will be setting that precedent that, oh, it can be done. Not only can it be done in the US, it can be done in this environment that's so you know, Republican, red state, right to work, like all of these barriers are here, but if they can, just hurdle over them and they can pull it off here. What's to stop workers in any other Amazon facility doing the same thing? There's not only like legal precedent, there will be kind of an inspirational precedent, like, oh, like, oh, we can do this. And you know, workers, Amazon is a global company. They have workers all across the world. We've already seen, um, I think it was, that there's a, we've, we've seen so many solidarity messages from workers across the country, but even there were Italian Amazon workers on strike like yesterday or the day before about pandemic safety and just kind of, you know, being like, hey, we're watching, you know, Polish Amazon workers are sending messages. Like this is, it's hard to understate how big this is, especially because it's happening here in the South, which has been written off in so many ways and has been, you know, the labor movement here has been kneecapped and ground down so much, but it's still here and it's doing really important work and you cannot write that off. Like where the South goes is I think where the movement should be going. And if they lose, that it'll be a heartbreaker, but they will still have gotten this far and they will still have set this example. And people will see this and be like, okay, well, we got to do it then. Like we got to, we got to get to the finish right. line. And there's going to be, and they'll be aware of the tactics too, because they're throwing everything at them. And so the next place, my guess is, even though they love to innovate, they may not have 
innovated enough tactics at that point to, I mean, who knows? Um, but it's, it's, it's simultaneously, this is happening while the pro act, uh, is, is, is being presented, um, to, to the Senate. Where are we with the, where are we with the pro act and why is the pro act so important? It keeps being labeled the most important piece of labor legislation, you know, possibly in a hundred years. Well, I mean, cause it is, you know, we haven't had this opportunity to, to actually have a chance to get through this kind of big, uh, fairly bold labor legislation in a long time, because the last president clearly wasn't going to do it. And even the ones before that, that wasn't a priority. We have a administration that at the very least are branding themselves as pro-union, pro-labor, and they've, they've been publicly supporting this legislation. So it's like, okay, we actually have a shot here. And the PRO Act will actually rectify some of the issues that we have in existing labor law and make it easier to unionize, make it easier for workers to, you know, collectively bargain. Like there's, I would have to go through and pick out and choose all the, you know, all the, all the important things. I haven't been following it as closely as some people because I've been down here, but it's, it's really important. It's going to help so many people. I really hope that they force it through. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know what kind of Senate saucery is needed to make it happen, but I really hope they pull it off because it really will help workers in this country. And this is really something that we need because there are so many people who are left out and kind of cut off from our labor, our current labor laws that because those labor laws are largely, they were passed in the thirties and the forties when we didn't have politicians that even had to pretend to care about like, how do we help migrant farm workers? How do we help black workers? How do we help disabled workers? Like there's so much more awareness of what the working class looks like now and what they need. That we really have an opportunity here to do some good. And I really hope they don't screw it up. Yeah, I mean, for instance, in the, in the case of the Bessemer uh, election right now, part of the PRO Act shortens election times make sure that they don't have these long drawn out election processes because why, what happens when these elections are, are really drawn out for over a month? I mean, people lose interest. It gives the employer way more time to just keep hammering with anti-union propaganda. I heard from a worker the other day that actually quit because they're just so tired of dealing with it. They said it felt like a psyop, like they're just constantly bombarded with the propaganda, with the managers, just with the text messages. Their phones are blowing up all the time. If there was a two-week election, I think it would look a lot different. You know, Amazon has had such a long time to hammer home these messages and people just get sick of it too, you know? Like these, like folks have things to do. They don't want to have to think about this all the time. They want to go to work, go home, live their lives. And they're just being hammered for, I think this has been seven weeks. That is a really long time. And, you know, I hope, I hope that it doesn't hurt the vote here, but it is drawing things out never helps. Voluntary recognition is always ideal, but if you're gonna go for an election, you know, keep it snappy, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, there's also money to be made. There's a lot of incentives to, to drag it out um, as well. So, okay, so the PRO Act is, is there, there's an opportunity here to transform uh, how this country deals with labor, to remove right-to-work states, uh, the ability for a state to be right-to-work, which is exactly you know what has happened in the South, which happened in the West. Um, and it's in, in a lot of these states where you've seen the red state revolts, where you know educators have, have organized in these red states um, and fought and won, or $15 minimum wage wins in Florida or whatever. You're seeing there's an appetite on the ground. Um, this was before the pandemic. I, I kind of want to shift gears because I feel one aspect of, of the economy that is not connected to labor as much, even though it should be, um, and it's completely intersectional, is women have 
universally suffered the most during um, this pandemic and the economy, both, you know, whether it's managing uh, your home or just taking on the burden of the economy um, that's in a spiral. Yet, and the workforce, by the way, overwhelmingly female, that is uh, tied to labor, whether it's frontline workers being teachers, uh, at-home care workers, um, healthcare workers, flight attendants. I mean, we could go through the list of all of these different unionized workforces that have been on the front lines that are majority women made up and women-led. Yet somehow this doesn't connect. I, I don't understand why like Biden is not saying we support our frontline workers, which means we support unions. Oh, by the way, and like this is a feminist issue. You know, it's it's a Women's History Month right now, right? So we we might get a couple mentions, might get a couple cursory mentions, but I mean, yeah, the disconnect is so ingrained. We even we uh, yesterday was one of the one of the equal pay days, right? And there's all this celebration around it, but like even that equal pay day, that's only for some women. That leaves behind black workers, brown workers, indigenous women, like Asian women. Like there there's just a lack of intersectional focus in general. And I mean, even like what you're talking about, the pandemic, like there there has been a lot of reporting about, you know, this is hurting women, this is hurting women. It's specifically hurting black and brown women. Like these are the the details that are being left out because people, maybe they're not paying enough attention or they don't care enough or, you know, I can't ascribe motives to anybody else, right? But it was disappointing because like you said, the working class is majority women. It's women of color specifically who are, who are leading these charges. And I think that the movement needs to be making a greater effort to, you know, spotlight that and show that that's actually happening and give actual resources and actual support to, to efforts like this. I mean, the effort here in, in Bessemer is being led by Black women, like one of the most vocal public faces of the campaign, Jennifer Bates, she's, she just turned 49. She's a middle-aged Black woman who comes from a, a labor background. She's been a union worker before, and now she's trying to lift up the rest of her coworkers. You know, this is the kind of story that we see, and there just isn't as much acknowledgement of it. And you're right. It's it's a problem. They should probably. I mean, look at the fifteen dollar minimum wage, for instance. Uh, you know, it was, it, for the last ten years, it was it was led by women, women of color, who I'll never forget the marches across New York City, shutting down New York City downtown, just seeing these fast food workers in particular, um, moms. Right? They were trying to change the narrative that no, it's not all teenagers. That was ten years ago, but that was a woman led movement, and and. It boggles my mind how, like, somehow I, I wish more unions would lean on the fact that it is a feminist issue. So when they are pressuring the Biden administration to support the $15 minimum wage or pressuring Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin to support the $15 minimum wage, it's not just coming from a place of working people need a living wage. It's union members are, 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 are the advocates for this. You're the unions that support you, Joe Manchin, still, um, is mind boggling to me, but also women like it is sexist for you not to support the $15 minimum wage. Can we just say that? It is sexist for you to not support the PRO Act. If you're right. for frontline workers, show it. There's so much rhetoric around, oh, the, the family, hardworking, you know, hardworking this, hardworking that. Like that leaves out single mothers, that like, leaves out women in general who are having to deal with these extra care, like child care or elder care, like just the, the mountains of invisible labor that women have to most women have to put up with. And you know, it's it is a feminist issue. And it's I think there's just such a 
like this ugh, like this reticence in I guess mainstream politics to touch anything that's like too oh well that's the feminists are into that we can't get too into that but it just comes down to the way that politicians flatten identities into like oh the like even talking about the Republicans talking about oh the hardworking Americans the the blue collar working class who do you think is in the working class who do you think is wearing these blue collars like it's not just like and all, all these white collar bosses trying to play to cosplay that they're from the working class because they saw a hammer once. Like <laughs> it just shows like this fundamental disconnect between you know what these people that have these platforms have this power and the people who you know are just being being used as tools and used as props. Like seeing Kristen Cinema talking about you know how, how women need to you know have a higher wage and women this women that like okay well we just saw what you did girl like you clearly don't Hurts care it. enough yeah rainbow bright over here like you know <laughs> like it's just there's such a, a resistance to take even the like most basic intersectional analysis to anything and to admit that the the workers the working class like this this block that you've imagined in your head is not just like the guys like my dad who were like white guys in a hard hat who like could go Trump or Bernie depending on how they feel. Like that's not what the working class looks like anymore. That's not who you need to be paying attention to or taking care of or trying to support. Like, it But just that was who they were trying to woo post-2016. The narrative out of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin was that that sliver of white working class men uh, were sexist right that was their whole thing that they were sexist and that's why they went to trump but turns out you know the margins were actually a lot smaller this time granted more voters in those swing states that we mentioned and you know it, it may not have been about sexism it may have just been about you're focusing on the a, a group of working class people that we shouldn't be focusing on maybe maybe work on expanding the electorate which is arguably what biden did do to win um he got more votes, but the margins were smaller in these states, and he still lost to those voters, the right. white working class men. You know, and if you're going to talk about union members in this country, what a union member looks like, it is a far more typical example of a union worker to talk about a, a black woman who works as a home health care aide or a hotel cleaner who is a member of, you know, SIU or Unite Here, who just got laid off and lost her income in the pandemic. Like, this is, it's so frustrating. And I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm going to be writing about in the book that I still need to start writing but it's just these this lack of understanding and lack of care when it comes to actually understanding who you're talking about who you're trying allegedly to fight for it all comes down to like what is the most convenient politically instead of what's actually happening and that's how we keep getting into all these messes and that's why you know one of the reasons why it's so important to pass this pro act because you know legislation that that getting it on the books even if it's flawed, even if it's not perfect, that is a start. And I mean, at this point, we're down so bad, like, we need a start. Right. I mean, if listen, if, if, if the centrist can use identity against working people, then working people should use identity against their narrative. Because you can't sit there and say, hashtag, support our frontline workers. And then as the economy is collapsing, uh, <laughs> most basic necessities, yeah. Yeah, the hashtags don't really put food on the table or pay your rent. Like, right. per, like performative tweets from senators don't actually do anything but distract the people who have time to sit and look at Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like the Amazon workers at the facility here are not seeing these pathetic attempts to dunk by like Dave Clark or whoever's running the Amazon propaganda right. networks. Like they don't see that, but we do. Like, right. so we'll, we'll dunk on you while they're doing the real work. 
Exactly. Well, Kim Kelly, love having you on. Love talking labor with you anytime. Uh, we're, we're, we're a labor-friendly show, as you know. <laughs> so keep up the amazing work. Stay safe. Um, hope you steer clear of any tornadoes. It's my greatest fear. I have a reoccurring nightmare. I've had it since I was a kid. It's it's like I know in a, d- a different life I probably died of a tornado. I'm I, I, Twice a year, at least, I have horrifying tornado dreams. So when I hear things like this, I start to like develop the sweat. So stay safe. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's it seems to be a little calmer now. We'll see. I mean, you know, cross fingers. There's a basement. I was gonna say, it better be a basement. <laughs> What's the evacuation strategy? Do we need to walk you through this? <laughs> I, I just want to know when Jeff Bezos bought his weather machine. That's my biggest question. <laughs> First, you, you know, damage the environment, the ecosystem, and then and you know, that's the that. joke about Amazon. <laughs> he literally wiped it out. No. I, I just have questions, but <laughs> Kim, thank you so much for joining us. You appreciate it. Thank you it. for having me. I'll see you soon. See you soon. Stay safe. All right, we will be right back with our fabulous Thursday panel. Rep Rab in the house with a run chowdery. Be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. It is Thursday. Thursday, and we have Rep. Rab representing the 200th district of Pennsylvania with his 200th district seal behind or logo behind him. Uh, of course, Rep. 200th district is Northwest Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and then we have Arun Chowdhury live from Berlin. He is, of course, a political filmmaker known for being the creative director for Bernie Sanders 2016, and was the first videographer. I'm not looking at my notes. First videographer for President Obama. Is that right? Did I get it right? It's only been a year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, got it. That's right. All right, guys. Uh, so President Biden had his first press conference uh, just minutes ago, and mm-hmm. I I want to share a few notable moments from the press conference. Um, he answered questions. Good good news. So Fox News can now like shut up and focus on Dr. Seuss again or something, um, <laughs> or him falling down the stairs. But he does uh, answer a question that we are all concerned with. It's about the filibuster, which uh, is a great excuse for him not to pass some transformative pieces of legislation. Let's roll that clip. President Barack Obama said he believed the filibuster was a relic of the Jim Crow era. Do you agree? Yes. If not, why not abolish it if it's a relic of the Jim Crow era? Successful electoral politics is the art of the possible. Let's figure out how we can get this done and move in the direction of significantly changing the abuse of even the filibuster rule first. It's been abused from the time it came into being by an extreme way in the last 20 years. Let's deal with the abuse first. It sounds like you're moving closer to eliminating the filibuster. Is that correct? I answered your question. You also just made some general uh, abuse of the filibuster rule. Not that the filibuster rule was yeah. a run. I mean, to me, look, you know, I, we can bring in a body language expert or whatever nonsense people do or whatever. But clearly her follow up caught him a bit by surprise. He was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, if that's true, then why wouldn't you get rid of it? Uh, caught him by surprise, and I think he got over the skis a little bit on how eager he is to get rid of the filibuster as a whole. I think, you know, he came to the podium 
uh, having the kind of half measure they've decided on, which is the revert back to the good old filibuster of olden times rather than the modern filibuster. And I think that's all he's prepared to give. And he kind of just leaned out a little too heavily and didn't know the answer uh, to the question. I wasn't aware that there was a filibuster uh, incrementalist reform bill. Were you, Representative Rapp? <laughs> no, um, yeah. So, you know, when you have an institutionalist like Biden, like he was in the Senate for decades, right? It's one thing to respect the institution, but to do it honor is to make it better, right? And to understand what are the structural changes that need to happen so that that deliberative body can be its best self. And, you know, the challenge I have with Biden, I had, I've always had this issue is, um, he, I think he's more about uh, uh, honoring the institution as it is, as what it could be. And so if he's talking about the art of the possible, I'd like to know what he thinks is possible in terms of institutional changes. And, you know, I, I, you know I've mentioned before, my first job out of college was working as a legislative aide for Carol Mosley Braun, who was the first black woman senator in US history. And uh, when she uh, first took the, she came to the uh, Senate floor one day in a pantsuit. This was 93. And uh, the sergeant of arms came up to her and said, well, uh, you, you can't be here. And she's looking at this person like they're crazy. And he said, oh, well, you know, women have to wear skirts and, and dresses. And she just gave this incredulous look like, you're not really going to make me leave the Senate floor. That's not happening. And that changed in that instant. That dissolved. That, that awful tradition, absurd tradition dissolved in a moment. Because um, nobody was going to tell her she's going to have to change her clothes to do her job, and, and rightfully so. Um, later on, before I left um, her office, um, she actually uh, uh, did a standing filibuster uh, to uh, reject the, the patent that is ceremonially given every X years to the Daughters of the Confederacy. Oh. It's some kind of um, honorific that the Senate bestows on them. And she's like, what? No, no, no. I, I can't allow that to happen as a black person. That's absurd. But it had always been done. So irrespective of how many liberals, you know, ha had preceded her, it took a black woman to say, why are we doing this? And, you know, I think the same can be asked of, of Joe Biden. Like, just because you have a reverence for this institution, what what supersedes that reverence? Meaningful change. And that requires you know, meaningful action. And this is a moment where there's almost unanimity around the racist origins and use of the filibuster. And if he wants to do, if he wants to go bold, then he needs to start with his revered institution. And where this becomes super sort of not cute and scary is that like, if Donald Trump didn't teach us that running a country by custom and sort of familiar, you know, wink and nod rule isn't a good idea. You got to write it all down and take care of it uh, to have people already being like, yeah, but it's okay if we negotiate it this way. It's like, no, no, the rules are actually written down. This crap is made up. If you really mean it, write it down and let's talk about it. Like no, no more of this gentleman's, you know, wink agreements. Yeah, you're right. gentleman's agreements, right? That it is a problematic term in it. In, in and of I mean itself, gender. but how I mean it is it actually absolutely right because you don't have to write it down because you know among men and 
back in the day, you know, Ted Kennedy was chummy with uh, uh, Jesse Helms and, and Strom Thurmond when I was there. And at, when they left work, they were rich white guys. That was not a, a privilege that, that my former boss had or that I have now when I'm in Harrisburg. And when we talk about these rules, um, I, I just want to mention one of the things that really shocks and is, is jaw-dropping among my constituents and other stakeholders when I talk to them about what really happens in their state capital, when they hear about some of these institutional practices, they're just floored. And I say, you can't be a, a, a citizen lobbyist. You can't be an effective organizer or someone who's truly engaged if you don't have a requisite amount of civic literacy. And you shouldn't have had to wait this long to hear it from me as a public servant. This should be public knowledge. But I say that prior to this term, this legislative term, all the minority chairs, the Democratic chairs of all the standing committees, all 24 committees in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives were chaired by men, 100% by men. And the response I got normally from men in power was, oh, well, it's not because, you know, we're sexist, we're Democrats. It's because of seniority. But no one says, what is the inherent problem with seniority? Because if 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or presently, 30 years ago, women were less viable because they didn't have penises, then that is an indictment of how we decide who gets to run committees. It's seniority. And the second most um, relevant uh, uh, pre predictor is your last name. Okay, so your this surname is... <laughs> begins with a Z. You'll never be a committee uh, a chair in a large crowd because it's not expertise. It's not lived experience. It's not formal education. It's none of that. It's seniority and the first letter of your last name. So I love that you bring this up because I'm I'm going to skip ahead for a second. Let's uh let's talk about Megan McCain because she mm. has been going off lately on on meritocracy. Yesterday we touched on how uh, with Helen Hong, uh, we touched on how she was concerned that um you know the View has uh had had one person who was Asian and and like we're going identity politics is ruling everything. <laughs> So um, I told a story, we all have stories like this, but, but this one happened very recently and I, my jaw dropped, of someone I know who was very upset during you know, the George Floyd protest, very upset that um, our country was becoming too identitarian and he lost a job opportunity one time as, as a firefighter to somebody, to a black man. And I said, well, um, how many people did they hire? Oh, okay, they hired 10 firefighters. I said, so you were the, the 10th worst white guy and the best <laughs> but I'm like literally that's all this is about it's just you suck and you wanted that seat at the table while everybody else who's the best in their space that is a woman a person of color they don't they just want one spot it's the it's the affirmative action thing right all right let's play this clip of Megan McCain because I'm, I'm like I I believe that what makes America exceptional is the fact that we're a meritocracy <laughs> nice and quick I don't know if we have also the one. outfit. Yikes! Yeah, that, that's there's a lot going on there. A lot happening. Um, is that what you're starting with, really? After this meritocracy, and you're starting with <laughs> what is she wearing? Well, yeah, I'm because she's quite literally sparkling there and talking about meritocracy, like she's the daughter of immigrants who grew up, like you know, in the back stock room, like taking care of business, you know, and that's absolutely. <laughs> 
not the case. And you find the people who talk about meritocracy the most, whether it's Donald Trump or Meghan McCain, are the people who've inherited the most and who've done the least. <laughs> it's, is it just code for white people? I mean, let's just be real here. Is Mer I've never heard anybody that is not represent either representing the Republicans or some capitalist farce. Um, well, Rab except on yeah. St. Patrick's Day. I mean, then it's all about identity politics. You're, it's about being Irish. It's not about being American. It's about being Irish. But wait, I thought we were Americans here. So what's this about Irish? That's very hyphenated reality. What's that about? Everyone on the House floor uh, last week or whenever it was, was wearing green. Um, I have a colleague, uh, Representative Donna Bullock, who's the chair of the Black Caucus, who just says, look, if you won't wear, um, uh, if you won't stand up for issues for Black women and uh, wear colors or speak up, then I'm not wearing green on, on St. Patrick's Day. Like, it, it's got to go both ways. Because we had a former chair of the Black Caucus in Pennsylvania um, who wore West African garb um, for um, um, one holiday or another on the House floor, and they said it was a costume and she had to change. So Ooh, if it's, Who said it was a costume? Who decides these things? The Speaker of the House, oh. um, who have been Republicans for most of the last... Uh, three decades. So, uh, yeah, so it was a costume if it's from, from continental Africa. Um, but if it's from, if it's of European extraction, then it's okay. And, you know, when they say, if you're complaining so much, random black person, why don't you just go, right? Well, let's just put it back on them, which is what I, I had fun doing during the Obama <laughs> era was, you, you don't like how this country is, is going? Go back to Europe, like everything is supposed to be wonderful. I mean, the, the, the foundational elements of Western, quote unquote, Western civilization is so great. Go back to your, to the, uh, to the motherland, to the fatherland and enjoy yourself and, and leave this, you know, rotting country okay. to the, you know, to the mud races or whatever. Figure out what 16th of your, of your biology you're going to go to. Pick Norway, yeah, pick whatever. Exactly. Sorry, Ron. <laughs> no, I was saying the reality uh, of the situation is is that every person of color, every marginalized community, every immigrant family, especially I can speak to this, like you grow up with that hustle uh, that, yeah, you have to be the best, which is the same thing that drives the meritocracy, but also knowing, and the system doesn't know you anything and it's probably rigged a bit against you. So you're going to have to deal with that. But the answer isn't to take your ball and go home. The answer is just you do what you got to do anyway. And uh, that is something that just, you know, to... I don't know how it would have been, so it's not fair to say to her, but that obviously is not something that is instilled from the kind of upbringing she has had, where you have to hold those two realities in the same time, which is you've got to run through the finish line like there is a finish line there, knowing that the system, we you know, doesn't particularly care to hold you up. I mean, there really is, I have this experience with her, knowing her, um, you know, I, I was born in Tucson, Arizona. She was born in Arizona. We would meet up in New York and be in green rooms. And, and you know, generally speaking, she was a more reasonable Republican that I would go on air with. It was much, uh, I think she's gone a little out there um, for her career. But she was, of the people that I would debate on air, we could go off air and like, she would talk about abortion and be very reasonable about it. I don't know where she stands now. With that being said, Let's talk about the two courses in life. I, by no means, I mean, I am privileged. Let me make it very, very clear. Um, I have my own privileges, but two courses in life, immigrant, grandchild, working class, background, whatever. 
um, her course in life. We both had media careers. I decided to go the progressive path because of my background. She stayed in her role because of her background and yet, and her name and her media career has, I'm on YouTube. I'm just, I mean, but it is a really important thing to keep in mind. She has excelled. We know our ratings. They were the same. That's not how meritocracy works, Megan McCain. And I am an example of why that doesn't work that way. You and I have had similar courses in our lives, yet- different outcomes for many, many reasons. And it's worse for people who are less privileged than me. I'm perfectly aware of that. But we have to call those things out, even in these spaces, which are extremely privileged, um, the media spaces. So I want to talk about Republicans for a second, because first off, I want to do a segment. You just inspired me, Rep. Rab, to do a segment with a bunch of um, lawmakers regularly talking about the ridiculous things that happen in legislatures, like I, I mean, you come in with so much information about what Republicans say on the floor today in 2021 that I don't think they could say in Congress, although there's some kooky ones in Congress right now. Um, it is, it's jaw-dropping to see the texture of, of our, uh, our, our, our legislatures across the country. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, in Biden's briefing, he talked about uh, the future of the Republican Party. And do you believe you'll be running against former President Trump? Oh, come on. I don't even think about it. I don't have, I have no idea. I have no idea whether there'll be a Republican Party. Do you? I'm going to go with, based on um, gerrymandering and the makeup of the legislatures and Koch brothers, I'm going to say, yeah, there's still going to be a Republican Party. What do you, I mean, what's, what are your bets? In 2022, you know. What's that? And they're favored in 2022 for good reasons to retake the, the House Nationals. Yeah. I mean, Rep. Rob, do Republicans exist in Pennsylvania, a place that everybody thinks is this blue state? Or sort of? Yeah, uh, they, well, we lost three seats in this last election cycle. So they're even more powerful now. But they're struggling in the sense that um, there has been a, uh, an exodus uh, from their party um, uh, because of all the, uh, all the Trumpism. Uh, and um, the other thing is, for gerrymandering in Pennsylvania, we're one of the top three worst, you know, most gerrymandered states that have um, been gerrymandered to the benefit of the Republican Party specifically, uh, with some notable exceptions for uh, urban uh, white Democrats. Uh, but that's that's probably another situation that we, we should talk about. Um, is that the in Pennsylvania uh, there's a five-person uh, commission? It's the it's the four floor leaders. Um, in the Pennsylvania Assembly, and the, f- the fifth person is has to be unanimously selected by those four. So they rarely agree on who that fifth person is. So the state Supreme Court gets to choose who the fifth is. And the state Supreme Court leans five to two Democrat. So Republicans are, you know, are in a position where they're going to have to play nicely to make sure that that fifth person is better off, better uh, than whoever the state Supreme Court uh, selects, which means that gerrymandering or rather redistricting at, by the end of this year could be of at least incremental benefit to the Commonwealth, which would inure to the benefit, I imagine, of, of Democrats uh, somewhat. But the fact that this process is not an independent commission is deeply problematic. Um, but you know how folks operate from state to state uh, like it, it's not a national thing; it's from state to state, which is why people really need to know 
who their state lawmakers are because so much of, of what impacts our lives happens is decided on the state level. And I remind people, slavery was uh, you know, a, state, uh, a state law. Um, in Pennsylvania, it was legal for um, a husband to rape his wife up until very recently, our lifetimes. And now it's an extension of patriarchy codified under state law, on and on and on. In Pennsylvania, if you are queer, you are a second-class citizen. You can be fired uh, for being gay, and it's perfectly legal outside of any of the blue bubbles, about three dozen blue bubbles across the state. But if I'm driving, and I'm queer, and I'm driving with my partner from Philly to Harrisburg, and I stop in a little town, and we're holding hands, they don't have to serve us. I can't get a room. It's all legal in Pennsylvania. State laws matter. So I, the, the big question I have, and I think a lot of people um, in our generation, younger, have is clearly Republicans have been, have, and this is what the opening of the show is about, was they've, they've been masters at um, tinking, uh, playing with the, the electoral laws across this country, whether it's gerrymandering or um, as the Democrats pull out of, of state parties and, and unions have been attacked uh, the state level, legislatures have been taken over uh, across this country where like Democrats just like didn't exist. There's no parties like, like, oh, want to run as a Democrat in Wyoming? Find the Democratic Party. Find it on the map. Oh, the, the number doesn't work. It hasn't worked for 30 years. So, you know, these things have all happened over the last, you know, three, four decades um, to protect understanding that the Republican Party at least the ideologies have been dying. Um, there's a new brand now that is reviving a little bit of young, some young people, but it's not enough. We know mathematically it is not enough given the millennial generation being the largest in history, most diverse in history, and definitely the most progressive. Gen Z on another, like, they're going to be, you know, organizing from like holograms. I don't know what they're going to be doing. From So is this just a timing thing? Like at what point is... The, and and run, I'm going to go to you for this. At what point does the generation start to catch up so fast that even these rules with little reforms in the legislature, um, it, it, like one outpaces the other? Does that make sense, Arun? <laughs> it makes sense to some extent. I mean, I think in a, in a gigantic holistic sense of like eventually aren't the people who disagree going to die? The answer is yes. Like we will see, you know, we will see a massive part of realignment when we see, uh, you know, the generations over the next 10 years start to shift. That is true. Uh, however, you know, however the demographics, however with all this, you also do need leadership and we need somebody, we need somebody, and they probably have to be a Democrat who is willing to uh, do, dig into some huge, huge things like making federal standards for elections. Like I think most American, no one's horrified by the idea of this, the idea that you would have one standard federal thing for elections. Anyone you ask is like, oh, that's a good idea. And most people are in fact shocked to find out that there's not, that there's no actual right to vote even enshrined in the constitution. The thing is so vague about all of this. So again, the theme of this show, right? Let's stop being ambiguous about this stuff and write it down. Uh, we just need people who are like willing to make that a hill to die on because how you vote and how you represent this country is a hill worth dying on. And Democrats are now seeing this. I mean, there are plenty of states. New York is a perfect example. It had the lowest turnout in the, uh, next to, to most voter restrictive laws next to Louisiana just a couple of years ago. And then finally, it was like enough. And other Democrats incumbents were like, all right, we're willing to suspend our 
you know, incumbent protection program, because that's essentially what it is, to have voting reforms. And I feel with this new legislation uh, that protects the voted, voting rights, um, there's an opportunity here for like Chuck Schumer uh, in a hearing yesterday over this, which we said in our open, uh, you know, it was a hill he's willing to die on. And it's just gotten so bad that even the worst Democrats are like, all right, it's time. Do you feel that way, Rep. Rob? Yeah. Um, and, you know, Pennsylvania is a really good example because uh, right before the pandemic, uh, we had a bipartisan bill widely supported by Republicans that removed uh, the uh, ex uh we created no excuse um, uh, voting, right? Uh, essentially voting by mail. That was a non-controversial bill um, that was enacted into law. And then uh, and three months later, we had the pandemic. And then Republicans realized how this could benefit um, uh, their opponents so much more. And so since then, they've been trying to undo the very thing they promoted. And look, we see what happens in Utah. Utah has had uh, uh, vote by mail exclusively, I believe, for decades. It's a pretty red state. Yeah, damn somehow, <laughs> right? This is, you know, I mean, this this is, you know, this this is a farce. Uh, but once people are used to having certain liberties and certain options, regardless of political ideology, they want to keep it. I think it's part of the the human experience. I don't know if you want to make it the American experience, but certainly. When folks like something and it's afforded to them and it works for them, they don't really want to give it up. Get your hands off my Obama. Get your hands off of my uh, Medicare, whatever it was. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Government. Get your government, government hands off of my Social Security. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to wrap with on this topic. Mitch McConnell uh, has been talking about this specific topic. Uh, shocker that he says that states are not engaging in trying to suppress suppress voters whatsoever. What if, like, do you believe us? Let's play Stop. this clip. The turnout in the 2020 election was the highest since 1900. Uh, states are not engaging in trying to suppress uh, voters whatsoever. This is clearly an effort by one party to rewrite the rules of our political system. You know, this is what's so... Free market, free market, don't want regulation, don't want regulation, except for voting. Right. We, 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 we talk, who was the, who was the person, uh, uh, Bobby Jindal, he was talking about his oh, dad saying, this is the greatest country in the world. You can go into a store and you have so many different cereals or something like that. Like, this is the reductionist, you know, yeah, Republican. Yeah, Smirnoff kind of take on it. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, but when it comes to uh, opportunities to vote, somehow, you know, we have to have a monopolistic nanny state. How about that? We use their own term against them and tells us what we, we can and cannot do. In Pennsylvania, you had to get an excuse, a, a note from your mommy if you were not able or interested in voting on election day during this, you know, this arbitrary 13 hour period um, until we changed that law. Uh, for 2020. And, you know, as soon as it seems like it's expanding the electorate and increasing voter turnout, that's what's what's pissing off my Republican colleagues. And, you know, so what we have to break that, that down to, and the same applies to the Electoral College and people on a bipartisan level saying, we either have to abolish it or bypass it. My very first bill when I got into office was the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact um, bill, 
And that was brought up by Republicans initially. And if we can get past the Electoral College, that means that more people will have their votes counted, which means that it'll be just, it will be more proportional to the diversity of the electorate. And that's a powerful thing on a generational level. I think that's good in terms of uh, geographic diversity, ethnic diversity, um, age diversity, and so forth. But we have to understand that the reason they're pushing up and that the reason they're comfortable with this hypocrisy is they know that the, all they have is a dying demography and that anyone who they believe um, is outside of that, that standard um, kind of profile is the enemy. Good luck with that, Arun. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that because, I mean, uh, things aren't always sort of equal in the way that they work and their ability to sort of throw these things and suppress, you know, targeted demographics of Democratic voters uh, are effective. And to counter them, you need to win elections in which you don't do that because you can't run on that then. And so you end up in this really horrible, vicious circle, you know. Sometimes, like when you look at something like campaign finance reform, you're tempted to say, you know what, let's just deregulate and have money go from everywhere. And at least that way, at least it's coming from everywhere. Uh, you're almost tempted here to be like, I wish Democrats were better at suppressing Republican votes so that, like, until we ban it, uh, there was a little parody because, you know, we're just saying that's wrong, that's wrong while it's happening. And it's not, it's, it's not a good feeling. You know, you're on the ropes just getting beat up. Well, I mean, it, it, it doesn't listen. Joe Biden won because he got more votes this election than than ever in history. But the margin in those swing states, as I've said on the show today and many times before, was smaller than that with Hillary Clinton. And but the only reason he won was because the electorate was expanded because there were more voters for both president presidential candidates. Um, than ever in history. And so, you know, that was Bernie Sanders' strategy, uh, definitely in 2016. An aspect of that in 2020 was to expand the electorate. Um, but you also have to have your Paul base. Rove strategy too, you know? I yep, mean, yep. a lot of smart people, yeah. It's not rocket science. It's just, do you yeah. want to win? Uh, and, and that's ultimately the question. Rep Rab, Arun Chowdhury, two people who know politics well, understand winning very well. Uh, always a pleasure having you on the show on Thursdays. You do. I mean, I've had, we've probably had <laughs> more. We're runs has, we lose a lot. We lose a lot. Rep Rav is, has won more than, has won, basically. Yeah, he's a winner. <laughs> he's a winner. <laughs> that guy senator. Yeah, I like that idea. Maybe you should run for Senate. <laughs> you guys are killing me. <laughs> it's a spicy race. I think there's a real, I mean, there's some, you know, some debate over who's on the left in that Senate race. I feel like there's room for a leftist to come in. Just throwing that out there. Primaries matter. Primaries matter. Very important. All right, guys. Always a pleasure. Uh, have a wonderful Thursday, and we'll see you uh, next week. And to everybody else, let's do these shout-outs. We've got J.K.R. Dozer. JK, or it's, no, it's J.K.R. Dozer. Uh, sending love. Thank you so much. And Jason, AFC83, subscribed for one month at Tier 1 yesterday. Thank you. And Midi Doctors gifted a month at Tier 1 that's so sweet of you to sad hap 20 today. A difficult truth gave out a, a tier one, one tier one to community sub gift. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Um, and Pete from Oakland says, incredible and chilling opener as always. Thank you. P.S. When does the next round of books go out? Great question. Um, should be soon. I the, the publisher distributes the books. If you guys don't know about our book club, uh, we have this great book club that we launched in January and we've partnered up with uh, Verso Books and Haymarket Books. Um, I think we have a few more that we're going to be partnering up with. 
I just finished up an interview. This was a book from a few weeks ago, but we had, you know, you have to schedule with all the authors and everything. An amazing book on reparations and uh, redeeming the promise of reparations. It's called Repair. It's by Catherine Frankie. It was an incredible conversation. The book is such an easy read. It's really like 160 pages. I read it in an afternoon or 150 pages. Read it in an afternoon. A great conversation. Uh, I definitely recommend you check it out. That'll be going up this week, that conversation. And then if you are part of the book club, you already know about Capital is Dead. Is this something worse? We had our interview with Mackenzie Wark uh, go up this week. She's brilliant, really broke my mind and freaked me out about where we're going uh, in terms of of capital Um, and, and the new form of capitalism or is this something different? Definitely go check it out. The Nomi Key Show uh, Patreon account, patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We have three levels, one book a month, two books a month, four books a month. You should be getting the book soon. Um, I will find out. I'm also on the distribution list. So as soon as I get it, usually everybody else gets it and I will give you that update. But if you want to know the calendar, uh, we have put it up. So for the next few months, our calendar of books, it's exciting, very good selections. And sometimes you get early access to books too uh, for the book club because of this relationship we have with Verso and Haymarket, two extraordinary publishers that we're grateful to work with. All right, everybody, uh, let me see, did I miss anything? Thanks to everyone on Twitch for getting our first level one hype train going. Some guy just says, hi, Nomiki, I smashed like button. Love your show, great content. Thank you, some guy. Everybody smash that like button. Share on social media. We are... Um, we're going to be shifting some stuff around the show soon. Not too much, just like a little bit here and there. Uh, definitely want to get the word out. As you know, we have extraordinary guests, great deep conversations, all within an hour, an hour and a half, uh, you know, a few times a week. I think that's digestible. I like to listen to podcasts, you know, briefly on my ride, on my walk, whatever. Um, so if you can share your experience watching the show, please do. We've got to get the word out. Thank you to Mini Docs and Mario for working those algorithms. Huge thank you to our YouTube moderators, Bob C. Choke in the Orb and Chuck Diesel. And always thank you to Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nightbot, Our Means, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch for keeping the chat rooms troll free. We will see you tomorrow for Femme Friday. Uh, same time, same place. And as always, stay in solidarity. 